Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Genuinely Interested Podcast. My name is Roy Bensvi, and I am the host of the show. This week, we have Sebastian Copeland, who is a polar explorer, climate researcher, photographer, and author. I believe I watched Into the Cold. I think that was the first documentary I ever saw, which I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I love watching explorers go to all these far regions. And this was one where I, I really you know, vividly remember the documentary and I've wanted to talk to him ever since. So I'm happy he took the time out. Uh, right now he's in Germany. So six hours ahead of us. And yeah, he took the time out. We had a really good conversation about 90 minutes or so. And I, I, I had a blast. You know, we talked about climate change, about politics a little bit. You can't run away from politics nowadays. It's in everything. I believe it's the new religion. So for good or bad, that comes up in every conversation nowadays. So we talked about that a little bit, but more climate change and more about where he grew up, how he grew up, how he came to be an explorer and how that all integrated into being an explorer and a photographer and someone who really wants to put out the message about climate change. That's something that's just not talked about enough, unfortunately not via the social media channels, not via the news. So it's important to have these opportunities when you have this long form podcast or format to have open conversations about important topics, about fun topics, but specifically here about climate change. It's arguably the most important issue of our times. Uh, it might not seem imminent. It might not seem like it's going to happen tomorrow, but it's happening all across the world in increments, little by little. And it's just not reported on enough because it's not a sexy issue like many other issues are. So it doesn't get the full 24-7 attention in the news that a lot of other topics get. But it is what it is. So that's why we're here and other people are here to bring this conversation up and with the wonderful magic that is the internet, we can broadcast it all over the world and have people engaged in conversation, listen to it and hopefully take something from it and pass it on to the next person and hopefully do something and even maybe I don't know, change some minds, change some hearts. That's all we can really do. It is a battle of ideas out there and hopefully the best ideas will float to the top. That's just um, how I see things. So I, I've, I was very happy to have Sebastian on. You know, it was very interesting to hear the psychology when you're walking in the polar regions, and how do you, how do you basically not break? Especially when there was something that he said that it blew my mind um, because the North Pole is essentially huge ice sheet. You could be walking 10 miles one day, straight line, and because it moves back and forth, you could essentially be at the same location that you started in once the day began. So you walk 10 miles, but you literally haven't moved a mile, which must be so frustrating mentally. And, you know, I think under those conditions, a lot of people might break. It's very, very frustrating. Imagine running a marathon, but being in the being in the starting line 
it's frustrating. So it's the mental aspect of it is is just as intriguing as the physical, as the um, threats of frostbite and um, dehydration and just freezing to death are imminent. I think the mental ability to stay focused and almost like in a Zen state is the most important thing. Uh, I do believe mind over matter. And I've had a lot of different guests on this podcast that have proved it throughout their, their lifetime. A strong mind is the strongest organ that you need. If your mind is strong, the rest of your body will will essentially follow. So happy to have Sebastian on the podcast. And yeah, we had a great conversation. He's a super articulate and really data-driven, which I liked. So yeah, without further ado, here is this week's guest, Sebastian Copeland. I hope you enjoyed the episode. The Genuinely Interested Podcast. Hey, Sebastian, how you doing? Good, Roy. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, man, I'm, um, I'm happy to have you on. I've been following your, uh, your expeditions, your journey, your career for a long time. So I'm happy to, to have you on and uh, we can discuss a few, few different things, man. Thanks again. There's a, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> especially nowadays. It's, yeah, it's, um, it's a funny time because there's a lot to talk about, but no one really wants to talk about it. Because everything is so insensitive. So, um, yeah, maybe we'll leave that for a little bit later on in, in the podcast. But, uh, yeah, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. We, where we need, we need to warm up to it. <laughs> exactly. It's not something – it's like, like you, you know, you when you go in the pool, you just, you know, you put your feet in and gradually you don't want to just jump right in. Um, yeah, so maybe, you know, where did you grow up, your first kind of years on Earth? Um, what was that like? Yeah, so um, so my I was raised in Europe. My my father's French, but my mother's English. My parents, uh, uh, well, the, the nature of that union uh, was doomed from the start. So my parents split when I was four, um, and uh, I grew up with my mom mostly. But uh, um, and then you know I I was basically a city kid. Spent you know um, I went to boarding school, but. Uh, Spent a lot of time playing rugby and um, a lot of athletics. Um, I played tennis. Um, and then I was lucky to be on uh, my father's. A, um, he's a musical conductor, but um, but he loves sailing. So I was on on boats from the time I was three. And um, and then as a teenager, I started uh, racing. And um, and then I got into windsurfing and surfing. And, and then, you know, for a little bit, I even taught windsurfing in the summer to make a little extra oh, really? money. Yeah, this was in the you know mid seventies, so it goes back a few years. Um, the beginning of the sport, uh, basically, yeah. and um, yeah, and then at sixteen, um, yeah, my mother looked at me one day and said, uh, "I have a sister as well," and she said, "You know, how do you feel about moving to New York?" And I was like, "Ace." Let's do it. Um, it was um, in 1980, so uh, the city was um, not what it is uh, today. We 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 uh, we had uh, definitely a couple of interesting experiences. It was socioeconomically much more distressed than than it is now, as it's been gentrified over the course of the last 30 years. But um, 
and then eventually, uh, so I finished my schooling in New York, and um, and then uh, then I, I headed to California, which was always my dream: skateboards, palm trees, bikinis, um, and uh, surfboards and stuff. So I went to UCLA, and uh, um, yeah, and I ended up staying in California. What was that transition like? Because again, like like you said, New York in the eighties was was a shit show. Uh, graffiti everywhere. Uh, you know, Midtown was just all prostitutes and, and drug dealers, and it's not the the fancy schmancy that it is now. So, what was that transition like coming from Europe, sailing to the gritty uh, streets of New York? Yeah, you know, I was, you know, lo and behold, I was, I was, I was a punk. So um, I was really into, um, you know, I mean. The clash were my sort of, you know, spiritual awakening, if you will, um, and um, and I was pretty precocious uh, in London, uh, seeing some um, some of the you know seminal punk bands of the day, um, a few of them anyhow. And so, New York, America was a little behind on punk, so and New York was definitely um, you know ground zero for U.S. punk until it sort of moved to the West Coast. So there was CBGBs and all these places that were pretty uh, pretty happening back then, and um, you know it was it was interesting because I was studying in in I did my uh, schooling in in French, so I got a baccalaureate, uh, and you get to pick you know the subject that you want to have in the French system. So I had economics and um, and um, and political science, and so I was really switched on to the politics of it, and then punk was you know was very much a political socioeconomic sort of byproduct of, of, um, of the times. And so, uh, uh, so for me, New York was, you know, exactly what it is. It was a melting pot, but a lot more interesting, I think, to some extent than it has been of late, uh, just brought in all these different influences. It was more affordable. So all kinds of different people could live there. You had the rich and the poor and everything in between a lot of artists. Um, and, uh, and I was definitely thinking that, you know, an artist would sort of be in my uh, in my wheelhouse and and in the end it got to be a little more complicated yeah so i mean it's it seems like initially when you were younger and and maybe more in europe because new york doesn't offer the same things but you were in you know encouraged to go play outside a little bit more or, or be on boats be on the ocean just be a little bit more connected to nature and then there was this new york part which new york really doesn't offer any nature and then you have california And I'm assuming that's where you got into photography. But then later on, we'll get to, you know, what what you currently do and what you've been doing the last uh, few years, which is more uh, Arctic exploration. But there's that whole middle section in the middle, right, where like it's almost like you had your childhood. It was almost like the intro to nature and to what you're doing now. But that whole gap in the middle was almost disconnected from those two stages. Very much so. I mean, it's in New York, you really have to, uh, yeah, you've got to, uh, to fight for your, your right to, uh, to be uh, outdoorsy. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just, it's a very, you know, ultra urban environment. And it was, uh, it was ironic because I, I went, as I said, I went to boarding school, uh, schools in, in Europe, and I was very athletic uh, there. And then I came to New York at 16, which is this, you know, very transitional age in uh in the sort of you know post-puberty and very much entrenched in, in uh, entrenched in adolescence and and if there's one thing that new york does is it makes you precocious you know you're mm-hmm. sort of thrown into the deep end of the pool and whether you you know it's a sink, sink or swim kind of deal and um and so uh, you know very very urban 
a lot of different influences, but um, uh, in many ways, that's really what what has defined me uh, always is just both uh, curiosity, which is I think probably a defining um, you know trade and interest um, in 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 my development, and um, and at the same time, just the diversity of influences, you know, so. There were artistic influences. There were intellectual influences. You know, later when I went to college, there was definitely a lot of science um, and environmental science and glaciology and um, um, but art and English as well. So a lot of different, you know, a lot of different influences. And at what point was this in California when you realized you wanted to go into photography? And you were originally a fashion photographer, right? So, yeah, it, it, you know, it was... It was once again a just you know the, uh, the byproduct of 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 opportunity more than uh, you know personal predilection. Uh, I mean, not to say that it was not great and attractive and and wonderful, but it just came you know two two sandwiches short of a picnic in terms of personal fulfillment in the long run. Um, and um, but you know moving back a few years, I I had when I grew up I. You know, I, I got on skis early, so that was pretty fortunate for me. I was very lucky that way. I, you know, I was on the ocean and in the mountains. And uh, and when I was 12, 13, I started reading a lot of uh, accounts from uh, polar explorers, you know. So there was obviously Shackleton at the top of the list. But Jack London became a very important uh, writer for me, uh, you know, wrote the, uh, the Call of the Wild and White Fangs. And, and then he had this sort of seminal book of of american socialism called uh, martin eden um which was also an important book for me um and um and, but then i you know i started reading the biographies of nansen and amundsen and and scott and the race to the south pole and all these things and now by the time i was 14 i i i didn't want to be a fireman i, I wanted to be a polar explorer um but i had absolutely zero idea uh i wasn't growing up in the Pacific Northwest, you know, or in Colorado mountains or, you know, so there was no direct connection to that. But my grandfather, however, was a surgeon and um, he, he, um, he was, well, he was raised in Belfast, but he moved to India um, early on and, and he was an avid hunter um, initially and uh, I'm not, but, um, but he hunted what you did hunt in India at the time and that was bears and tigers a lot of, you know, big game hunting. Um, it's sort of what you did in those days. You know, even my, my grandmother uh, also killed a couple of tigers. Um, it seems abhorrent today, of course, but yeah. uh, in the 30s, that's sort of, that was the, the game in town. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, the, you know, at the end of the Raj in India, um, when uh, they were encouraged to leave, uh, they, they went to South Africa, couldn't deal with apartheid, so they settled in Swaziland. And when I was 12, I started to go visit them. And I was on my first safaris with my grandfather, who was really an adventurous. He'd gone to Botswana and Tanzania in the 30s and 40s, you know, long before it was a thing. And uh, so I had a little plastic camera, uh, Kodak, when I was 12. And I took my first pictures, I still have them, uh, of uh, wildlife in, um, in, you know, both in Kruger um, in, uh, in South Africa and then a couple of private parks in Swaziland. So yeah. those were my, that was my introduction to photography. You know, I, it was always the kind of the adventure angle is, was always what I was interested in. It's just not, it was not a very lucrative uh, occupation. Um, you know, coming out of college, I was lucky enough to 
to be able to take photographs of other things that were more commercial and uh, and somehow that led one thing to another. Yeah. Yeah, I I lived um, I lived in South Africa for a few years. I lived in Africa for for many years growing up. So amazing. Been, yeah, so I've been to some of these places, and I think at the I think at the time I didn't like it that much, but I think in hindsight I appreciate it so much more. I think at the time it was like, oh, I'm you know they're taking me away from my friends, and and every time I have to move, and it sucks, and um, the difficulty of integrating into a new place each time. But I think in hindsight. It gave me so much uh, that I just—it took me probably a good fifteen to twenty years to appreciate it. Is your your, your family in mining, or father in mining, or military? Or? No, 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 no. He was—he just um, so mostly construction. Um, so they would, you know, road pavement or uh, um, sure all that kind of stuff, um, gas lines. Um, so he would help. De- he would help develop uh, these places, but yeah, at the time I didn't appreciate it. So, I mean, earlier you, you, you mentioned that growing up, you, you were reading Shackleton and all these people. Um, and I think there's this romantic notion, right, of exploration, the, the seclusion, the adventure, the, the bravery of going to these harsh environments. Um, did you, quote unquote, fall for this as well? And then uh, on the ground, how different is it from what you read about in, in the books or what the notion is? Yeah, it's it's you know it's it's as diff- it's a it's truly a polar opposite. Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> no pun. To, yeah. to 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 what you expect from a romantic notion. The romance is there, but it 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 primarily happens in retrospect, or you know, or in you know, or or before, um, you know, as a prelude. I mean, you're you 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 definitely. I I grew up with you know the British sort of history is is quite steeped in uh, in um, you know polar exploration. I mean the two dominant nations in polar exploration. Not that I compare Britain to uh, to Norway because Norwegian explorers were far and away better explorers, but uh, technically speaking. But in terms of the spirit of the heart, um, that sort of you know that 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 passion for venturing out, um, you know, for just sort of galvanizing your, your sense of, of pushing the limits, your own personal limits, all that stuff. That's very much entrenched in British culture, especially when it comes to polar exploration and, to, uh, you know, to a larger degree, I guess, uh, in that culture of colonialism, uh, which is, uh, I think, born out of the same kind of, uh, you know, mentality. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's something I was kind of thinking about while you were answering this. It's, I mean, the English pretty much colonized all but maybe 17 countries or so. I mean, the, a good portion of the world. And like you said, explorations. And even now, like all, all these people that break these amazing records, like um, what's the guy's name? Ross Edgley, I think his name was. He swam, swam around the whole of Great Britain and just all these amazing feats. And um, I always wonder what is it about the English that they have this um, passion for exploration? Yeah, it must have something to do with the climate, you know, getting getting out of Dodge. <laughs> they just want to leave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, it's too good. Um, so I guess what was your first uh, expedition? So, yeah, so, so the, you know, the, this was a, a tiered process um the you know the the my my you know adventure spirit was developed over the course of of years i you know when i was 
when I was a kid, I, I had absolutely no idea how I would become a polar explorer. But I thought, okay, I'll, I'll probably get into that in my, you know, in my second half, you know, in my 50s or something, because I figured it would cost a lot of money and, you know, resources and whatnot to uh, to go there. And, you know, remember that in the history of, of polar exploration, they, they, there was, you know, a massive gap in the 20th century. There, there were seminal uh, discoveries, you know, South Pole discovered in, in 1911, uh, the North Pole allegedly in 1909. Um, and I say allegedly because, you know, Admiral Perry was claimed to have reached the, the North Pole, but it's highly unlikely that he actually got there, although he probably got the closest. But uh, but it wasn't until 1968 that the North Pole was uh, was reached. Uh, and this this time it was, you know, um, it was legit. And um, and for the, the South Pole after 1911, there was this gap of you know, almost almost fifty years. It was not until 1956, I think, that the um, that the Scott Amundsen Station was established at the South Pole. So, when I grew up, you know, I was born in 1964. Um, you know, 68 was the first time that somebody reached the North Pole. You know, so it wasn't a it wasn't a developed uh, it was not an industry, even if it's a cottage industry. But it it, it certainly um, there was a yeah a lot of discovering to do, and so. Coming back to how I saw it in my late teens and early 20s, I thought, well, I'm going to need a lot of money if I want to, to be able to do this and having no idea how to go about it. But meanwhile, I was doing a lot of other things, you know, um, you know, in the mountains. I climbed quite a lot. I was a big rock climber and did some mountaineering as well and, of course, skied a lot, did a lot of extreme skiing. And, um, and on the water, I did trips, especially when I moved to California, I went down to Baja and, and just did these sort of exploratory surf trips and uh, slept in my truck for, you know, weeks at a time and, uh, and getting used to this kind of interactivity between, um, you know, between man and nature and, uh, and try to cohabit in a sustainable fashion and, and self-reliant fashion. So, uh, so, so I would say, you know, this was the, you know, the, the sort of the runway that, that helped uh, get me off the ground, and uh, and then after that, um, it it you know mountaineering was a was a big thing, and then I started to see the, you know, some of the aspects of. Of course, I had my sights on Everest, and I wanted to do all these things, but then I started to come, you know, become more aware of the detrimental aspect of these trips on the mountain, and uh, and I started to lose that appetite, and I realized I want to start to focus again on the on the Arctic, and. Really, the the thing is, I had studied climatology and glaciology in college, and astronomy as well. Um, you know, so these science. I'm a big, you know, space fan. Um, and so, when I went, I diverged out of college into uh, profession. Instead of going for a PhD, I, I I got basically my you know work handed on a platter, and I was able to work commercially. And as I said, it started while I was in college, and and it was quite a lucrative um, occupation. And so I, I did some music videos because I was really into, into music. Um, and I, I got to work with, you know, really interesting people. Uh, I was really into jazz. And I, I got to work with Miles Davis and Brentford Marsalis and even like people like Harry Connick and, you know, Robert Cray, blues guitarist and all this stuff. So it really, it was interesting for me. Intellect, I mean, musically, artistically, that, that is. But intellectually, you, you know, there was, science was always 
uh, right there in the background and and trying to sort of coalesce you know all these different influences and and the, the way that they really coalesced was uh, was with climate change. Essentially, I got educated into the uh, you know the nefarious impact of anthropogenic activities on 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 nature in the late '90s, and it's like a bulb went off. And then I realized, wow, this would be the perfect time to basically bring those three pillars of my house, which is adventure and exploration, at least this budding desire that I had of it with um with a climate discussion and using um my camera as a weapon and i you know these are the three pillars basically of 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 my temple of my house and i was able to look at the polar region and say wow this is the perfect time to go out there and just take a shot you know um and so that that's basically how it happened it was really climate that got me there yeah We'll, we'll we'll touch up on the. I definitely want to talk about climate change, but we'll get to that a little bit later. So, yeah. So, so the, what was the actual first, you know, expedition? I mean, what do you also what do you categorize an expedition? Does it have to be X amount of time or X amount of kilometers? Um, how do you categorize that? That's a very good question. You know, um, I, I suppose we we all have our limits, and I think. To be a, an explorer is to be willing to uh, keep pushing that limit, if you will. Um, you know, I, I constantly face this existential consideration relative to my, you know, my, my exploring, um, thinking, when is it going to be that I hang my hat? And, yeah. and what determines how many years is it that makes you, you know, no longer an explorer because you're no longer pushing your limits, at least in that context. And, uh, you know, and, and so for some years I was doing an expedition every year. Sometimes I even managed to squeeze two in a year, which was very ambitious. Um, and then the years started to stretch, you know, two, three years and then four years. And I'll get back to some more specifics. I understand your question, but, 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 you know, the, the, the question is how, what qualifies it? And, and I think that, what qualifies as a, as a, an ex- expedition, or at least you qualify as an explorer, is if you you're not just relying on one particular accomplishment, or you know, or two or three or whatnot, but that you're constantly your eyes set on the horizon, just thinking where and when am I going to be able to go there? And there's no question that the landscape of exploring is more challenging today than it was 20 years ago, 22 years ago when I started. Um, and, you know, and even the guys that came before me, there was still, once again, this landscape of discovery. And in the age of Google and Google Maps and all the rest, the, you know, the, the, the narrative has changed uh, to, to a large extent uh, where this concept of, you know, foraging into the unknown uh, when you're tethered to social media and a satellite phone and, and uh, you know, real-time communication. Um, it gives it a completely different context. Perhaps, you know, bringing it more into the athleticism, a little less into the exploring or whatnot. But in answer to your question, I, I, you know, initially when you start your, my way in was basically to create a, an environmental initiative in defense of the Inuit who were to be the first victims um, of climate change losing their culture and their way of life at the hands of melting ice. So that was my first sort of foray into the Arctic. 
And um, it wasn't so much an expedition as much as it was, um, you know, a, a bit of a, um, uh, you know, basically de- defraying the landscape, getting a first glimpse into the uh, the area. And and it was probably a very good one because I, I went there initially with a lot of big, heavy, expensive cameras and was immediately, um, you know, uh, personally ridiculed um for that kind of you know zealous desire to to bring the lower latitudes to the arctic yeah you're, you're dealing in you know, sub-zero temperatures where film because of course there was film at the time and not digital but film would freeze and sprocket holes would rip and the equipment was made of metal so extremely cold in very cold environment and of course you had to thread film through the sprockets and everything without gloves and so it was very much, you know, humbling. Yeah. I mean, I, I, guess, I guess there's a few questions I want to ask from that. But the first is you did mention, you know, uh, the age of Google and social media and, uh, are, you know, and, and the changing landscape, especially in the North Pole, where, you know, who knows if people are even going to be able to do that in, in 10 or 20 years. Um, but are there any real challenges left for for humans? It seems like we pretty much have done everything, and now you know it's either exploring Mars or doing the things that we've already done, but just in a faster time or in a more creative way, or you know, on a unicycle or whatever it is. It's just it's it, but it's the same thing. It's just recycling it. To to, to a large degree, I think I think you're right. Um, in spite of the fact that. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely an addiction, uh, when, once you're, you know, once you go down that cubby hole, oh, uh, sure. it's, it's, it's really difficult to give up. And so I think, you know, explorers, the noteworthy ones, at least deserve a lot of credit for their ability to dig out, uh, an obscure <laughs> fur, yeah. you know, yeah. or a, a sort of, you know, unthought of route and, and, uh, you know, something that would define them against prior experiences and whatnot. And, and I'm certainly not innocent of, of that, that kind of, um, you know, that, that, that kind of ambition to, uh, to come up with something uh, different. Um, but I, but I think you, you're right. I mean, all of us, you know, this small cottage industry of, you know, community of, 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 of people in this field, you know, and there's some very, very special people uh, d- doing it uh, extraordinarily, uh, you know, adept and, and great, you know, much better than I am. Uh, but within that small community of ours, you know, and we many of us know each other. So it's always it's a re- recurring theme. Yeah, you know, it's what what to do next. And so if, for me, I, there's still a few things that I have, you know, in uh, in my my bag that I'm, I'm I'm looking to put off. But one of them is more a seminal, um, you know, it, it, point of of um you know giving us pause and and that is the disappearance of the north pole and sort of trying to figure out when and who is going to be the last one to go there and uh you know i purport to to be one if not the one doing it um you know perhaps somebody will get there before me but it, it though it's certain is that whoever gets there within the next few years is most likely going to be the last one to do it that's so sad. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely a group of amazing, talented, 
um, people who don't give up no matter what the circumstances. That's why, you know, we have you on podcast and, and people buy your books and uh, go see the documentaries because 99% of, of people can't endure, um, you know, the cold, the, the, the danger, the dehydration, all those things that people go through to achieve these amazing things. It's just, I always, I, I'm always wondering like, Oh wow. Like they've done everything. What are they going to do next? And, uh, And then, but they always find something, right? They always like, oh, swim from uh, Miami to Cuba or uh, go from Australia to New Zealand in a kayak. Or there's always, or, you know, um, uh, I don't know, uh, skydive off of Everest, whatever it is, there's always something new that someone comes up with. And it's, it's, it's an amazing thing because, you know, I've I've done a few of these things, like not nothing in just mountaineering and, and some basic stuff. And, And it's hard. It's it's not easy at all. And those are just like small, small feats compared to some of the bigger ones that these um, guys are doing. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's definitely um, it's definitely interesting to see the uh, the ingenuity and the creativity. There's th- th- there are a lot of things to accomplish. I, I think what gets difficult for the polar regions is that it's expensive to go um, to go to the you know and to, to the poles. Um, Antarctica is expensive because it's it's a continent that's isolated from uh, from South America or South Africa or New Zealand, and then the the north is is also you know the farther you go, the obviously you you're out the beaten path, and now it's it, all this is you know utilizing chartered air transportation, and and that doesn't come cheap. So, um, you know the the barriers trying to find money for these things is that. At the end of the day, for many sponsors, particularly I was privileged to have some sponsors for many years, the same sponsors who were very, very good to me and very loyal. Um, but there definitely comes a point where they go, another white desert, like they all look the same. You know, it doesn't matter if you're on Greenland or if you're on Antarctica or, you know, there's, there's always this kind of, you know, monotony of, of the, you know, the white darkness. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe take us through the, the, the psychology. I mean, it's, it's minus 40, constant pain, cold, danger, dehydration, uh, potential frostbite. And you have to endure this for, for weeks, right? And the, it's not, there's no uh, little cabin to go into and, and cozy up at night. It's, it's consistent. And I mean, kind of what do you tell yourself in, in the worst moments? And, and when you're out there for weeks, just walking and it's the same landscape and there's no it, it doesn't really change right is, is it almost like a form of of meditation that you go into when you when you're walking out there very much so i mean you you nailed it uh the, these trips are nothing if not an internal uh journey as well as external um it, it's um you know you, you you benefit from from you know one one aspect of it which is that You don't really have a choice. If this is an unsupported mission, which tends to be the case, um, once you step off that plane, uh, there's no turning back unless you call that a failure. Um, and so you, for the most part, you, you, you make do and you fall into some form of monotony and it doesn't really matter if it's, you know, 35 below on average. Um, you tend to follow the same kind of monotonous rhythm every day and it becomes that meditation. But I would take exception um, with, uh, with the North Pole, which is an environment that's so hyperdynamic, so challenging, um, 
where you're constantly confronted with a variety of of life threatening risks that um, you know that, that that are really really powerful in terms of your um, com- you know how confronted you are with with the fragility of of life and one wrong move and that could be the end. So that definitely keeps you hyper focused. I would say a lot more um, on the Arctic Sea towards the North Pole than just about anywhere else. Um, you know, the different another environment would be if you're crossing big sort of glaciers and there's enormous amount of crevasses. And so you're you're also in that hyper-focused environment there as well. Um, but otherwise, you know, if you're on an ice sheet like Greenland or Antarctica, your point was well made earlier. Yeah, it's true. You, you, you don't have a hut or anything. And to that effect, you know, I, I had the good fortune of crossing Greenland from south to north. Uh, it was a 2,300-kilometer journey. And um, I think it was about 1,500 miles and um and you know i had wanted to uh to to do a 24 hour run and see uh, whether chips would fall at the end in terms of distance and and so my partner and i did that on one day where the winds were uh, cooperating and um and we ended up setting a a, a record for the longest distance uh kite skied um, um and that was 360 miles so 595 kilometers but what was relevant uh, aside from the gratification of 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 having you know set a, a a record that way was the fact that there was no you cheering crowd at the end or no rushing yeah. masseuse or <laughs> you know no sort of you know there was basically a nylon tent with a hot yeah. cocoa and <laughs> uh, and then the next morning you basically dust yourself off and you proceed on the route for you know another twenty days or whatever. It's humbling. Um, yeah. So uh, so so you know definitely there's monotony there. There's you know that's got its unique brand of of accomplishments which tend to live mostly in the kind of obscurity of of these abstract records. You know because uh, at the end of the day, who cares what the longest distance kite skied in the world is? You know what I mean? It's <laughs> it's, it's not something that's going to be you know, buying you a new kitchen or retiring. Um, it's just a, one of those little abstract numbers. Yeah. I mean, it's a very niche uh, community. And I think the, the it's not necessarily that, that people will care, but I think there's somebody that's going to do it eventually. And it might as well be you if that's something you want to do. But h- how do you even deal with the, with the, I mean, it's already freezing. It's I don't know what the temperature, but I'm assuming it's probably minus thirty, minus forty. And then on top of that, you you're going at, at insane speeds, so the wind must just be battering you the whole way. No, when you're kite skiing, well, yeah. Except for you know the, the the nature of kite skiing is that you you're not you don't have headwinds, which are the ones that are the most uh, the, the most challenging mm. to deal with. When you're kite skiing, the wind is either at your back or coming to the side and because if even if it's to the side, the pull of the kite is going to put your back to the wind. Um, and so by and large, as long as you've got windproof gear, which goes without saying, um, you, the only thing that you have to contend with when you're kite skiing is that your, your, your hands tend to be above your heart in positioning where you're holding onto the bar. So circulation can become a, an issue. And of course, you're going in one direction for hours if not days or weeks months on end and it's sort of like if you're if you're a skier it's kind of like imagine if you had to keep going around and around the mountain on the same leg you know mm-hmm. so you're yeah. pressing mostly the downwind 
leg is what the one that's taking most of the brunt. You're carving on that one. And then the other one is just the balancer. So one leg is really getting the, you know, the brunt of it and the other one a lot less. So when you're dealing with a trip that's, you know, 60, 80, 85, 100 days, um, it, it gets to be a grind on that leg. Yeah, you, you mentioned windproof uh, gear, and, and that's something I, I think about so much. Uh, nowadays, we have windproof, we have Gore-Tex, we have Thermal, we have Dan, we have all these technologies in in, in the um, shoes and in the uh, helmets and in basically all the tech and the gear and, and the clothes that we wear when we're doing these type of adventures. A hundred years ago, they had nothing. You know, they didn't have the the the, the gloves and the, the all these different. I mean, they had gloves, but not the type of gloves we have now. And I'm just I always think like how hardcore, how strong, like emotionally were those guys to just suffer through that where they just had like some wool jackets and somehow they, they made it through. Yeah, well, I mean, that you know, the, the, the truth is they had appropriate gear um, or at least really? gear that was designed to nothing compared to what we have today. I'll yeah. give you that, both in terms of weight and hygiene and all kinds of, uh, of different parameters. But, you know, Roald Amundsen uh, spent a lot of time with the Inuit before he endeavored to, um, to cross the South Pole. Um, and you know, from them, he learned to wear animal skin, which were windproof and, and, and super, super warm. Um, you know, hygienically, it was a different issue, of course, because you end up sweating quite a bit and, it, yeah. you know, there's, it stinks and, you know, there's a lot of things going against it. So I'll take, you know, uh, Prima Loft and Gore-Tex or whatever <laughs> any yeah. day over that. And then, you know, and then the, you know, the, the Brits um, were definitely not as schooled in polar travel from the Inuit, which, let's not forget, had 4,000 years of living in these uh, northern uh, you know, uh, antagonistic environments. And they figured out uh, quite a few things with both igloos and, you know, and, and how to generate heat. Um, but the Brits, you know, and, uh, you know, Shackleton and, and, and Scott and these guys, they, um, they you know, they had wax uh, covered uh, garment. And then, of course, you know, wool. And needless to say, uh, it was definitely a formula that was very, very inferior relative to what the Inuit had figured out. But it was windproof, you know, uh, for what, whatever it's worth. Uh, and, and then the wool was, uh, if you have wool and windproof, in many ways it's a little bit like we have today, except today is Moreno, which is Moreno wool, which is bacteria, um, you know, friendly. And, um, and then you can have, um, you know, uh, as I said, uh, you know, Gore-Tex or, or different different type of of um, yeah of materials that uh, yeah and now or, now there's I, I've seen some new technology um, I forget that might be aerogel or it's something that not that NASA uses and it's supposedly you know you can go as 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 below as like minus forty minus fifty in it it's something crazy I, I've never used it but I just is it, it is it the guys from Falcon Nine what they were wearing. Because, I mean, you have to say that was pretty wimpy looking outfits. I mean, when you, when you, when you compare to what they wore in 1969, uh, the, uh, you know, no, I mean, I'm, I'm joking because I was, I was so excited last week when, you know, when, when Falcon 9 went out. And, uh, but they came in with the, with the Teslas and those little yeah. kind of white plastic suits. It looked like a 1960s vision of what the future would look like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he always goes above and beyond, man. Uh, Elon, he oh, yeah. uh, does yeah, things yeah. differently. I uh, listen. The guy's he, he's the best disruptor ever. I mean, uh, ever. He's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we need more Elons. Um, For sure. More Elons, less Trumps. Um, so you you <laughs> you mentioned um, you mentioned sweat uh, a little earlier, and 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 that took me because I remember I was watching uh, one of your films, and it, you basically so in the Arctic you're pulling about two hundred pounds um, of of just your your life support, and but you're essentially not allowed to sweat because if you start sweating too much, you can. Um, your body basically will will freeze once you once it cools down, correct? So yeah. how, how how do you regulate that? Yeah. So um, yeah. So so in terms of the weight, you know, obviously that varies greatly according to the distance because the the bulk of the rate is uh, of the weight is divided between what you you know your your the gear that you're going to use no matter what, and so uh, by the time you reach your objective, it's going to be that amount of weight, and then the rest is is fuel and food, and uh, and so depending on the distance. You know, some trips uh, you pull 400 pounds, and uh, yeah. you know, I've done oh, wow. quite a few few of those. And and um, and in terms of um, yeah, your question was um, uh, the sweat. So my my friend um, uh, Maddie McNair, who's um, who's sort of a you know she's a bit of a a polar guru, and she was very instrumental in in uh, early in my uh, my career. She gave me a lot of pointers and. Now she she runs a course even up there and uh, uh, but I, I got to befriend her while I was up there doing initiatives with the Inuit and whatnot and and so we became friends and and she has this thing where she goes you sweat you die you know which is a bit of a hyperbole but it's not untrue I mean the reality is in polar environments you're 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 doing um, you know aerobic uh, exercise where your your physical output is intense the heart rate goes up the heart rate goes up and so. Um, your body temperature goes uh, up along with it. So if you if you're of course in in the normal context, uh, you would be sweating profusely uh, for for doing so. And the, the problem with sweating is that you, the fabric of your clothing gets to be wet, and your body temperature may neutralize that cold uh, while you're at full exertion. But as soon as you stop, if you're in you know thirty, forty, fifty. 60 below, you know, this is without uh, windshield. The worst I've had was 63 below uh, without, uh, without, without wind. Uh, with wind, it was minus 90 or something, yeah. And, um, and so, so the, um, the problem is as soon as you stop, the outside conditions immediately grip onto your, you know, all of that extraneous heat, you know, dissipates within a matter of minutes. And now that wet material starts to close in on your skin and, uh, and just brings your body temperature down and you can get you know, hypothermic, I guess, um, if you're not careful. So ironically, when you're traveling very, very cold region and, um, and particularly when you're pulling, uh, or, you know, walking, um, you, you wear very little clothing. I mean, I basically have a Cordura shell, which is a windproof shell. And um, with a little nylon windproof, second windproof, um, you know, uh, layer, very thin uh, underneath it. And then I have one Morena wool. And then under that, I have a nylon fishnet, which is basically preventing the sweat from sticking to the, uh, to the wall and my skin oh. to create a little pocket of, of air that separates my skin from the Moreno. And that's it, you know. And so, y y y I mean, listen, in New York City in January – I guarantee you wear three times more clothing than I do, and it's only you know ten below or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, but over there you you know you're in full exertion, and of course as soon as you stop, you put a big jacket over, 
and uh, and that that prevents all that heat from uh, from escaping. Yeah, well, not 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 New York this year. New York this year was a very um, very mild winter. We had I think maybe last even two years, two two or three years, it's been very very mild. Um, so I know one of the questions you get asked all the time is how do you go to the bathroom? The toilet. And I'm not, and I'm not gonna ask that question. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> we'll we'll it's skip a, right through that. It's a trade secret. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, you know, we we don't need all the information. It's, we can we can guess, yeah. But um, so I guess what was your hardest expedition? Was it the Arctic one? Yes. Yeah, so 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 the North Pole always gets the uh, the cup when it takes when it comes to to difficulty. Um, it you know I did um, I was I was the, I was on the Arctic Sea three times. Um, and, uh, the, the first time in 1909, I mean, I'm saying 2009, uh, centenary of, of, of Perry's, um, trip. And then I was there again, uh, the last time was there 2017, uh, for my first abort, uh, mission. And I got, you know, six frostbites on my fingers from, um, a failed, um, fuel pump. So the you know the the, the the Arctic is super super tough because it's it's a hyperdynamic environment. You're basically walking on water. So the, the, the reality is that ice is constantly susceptible to motion from uh, wind mostly, and then tides and current. Uh, so as it moves, you know it's it's not doesn't move sort of in this homogeneous way. It it cracks and and when it cracks, it reveals the ocean that's below. In what we call the uh, open leads, and you know, it's there's fourteen thousand six hundred feet of depth at the North Pole, and so it's deep ocean, and and so you're walking on just sometimes just a you know a few centimeters, occasionally a few inches, you know, at the most three four feet at the very most, and it's constantly in motion. And what is relevant about that is that there's a um, you know there's the the transpolar uh, drift which comes from Siberia and moves towards Greenland, uh, which is essentially in the opposite direction of where you're walking when you come from Canada towards the North Pole. So you're essentially on a treadmill, and it's the, you know, the polar treadmill, the Arctic treadmill, where sometimes it's happened that I woke up in a spot that was behind the day's journey from, you know, the day prior's journey. And so I'd put in, you know, 14 hours of, of really, you know, you really fight for every single mile and then you go to sleep and the drift is so strong that you wake up and you're, you know, you're a certain decimal point on your GPS uh, behind where you started the day before. So you could essentially be walking a straight line for the whole day for, let's say, I don't know, 10 miles or so. And then because of the ice drift, you could essentially be at the same location that you started the day. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you may be on a, you know, you may be on a drift that could be, you know, 12, 12 miles uh, in, a, in one single day in a 24 hour period. And that's, if you do 12 miles, you, you're doing very well, very, very well on the polar, uh, on the polar. Because the, the other thing is these open leads is not the only challenge. When, when two plates come and collide, uh, they don't just stop where the ice is, you know, because yeah. you have that force that is uh, moving these, you know, billions of tons of ice. And as they collide, they sort of crumble into these walls of ice, these, you know, that can, that can vary between a few inches to, you know, up to 15 feet in height. And these walls of ice that we call pressure ridges. And that pressure 
is the defining characteristic of the Arctic Sea because every time the leads are more occasional, although they're, they're current uh, currency there, but the, 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 you know, the, the, um, the pressure ridges is what's left uh, after, uh, you know, after, year, after days and after years of, of breaking up. So it's constantly broken up. It's not this even terrain that you can, you can't kite going to the North Pole because of the pressure ridge. Because, yeah. And so every time you see a pressure ridge, you've got to pull your sledge, which is, you know, two, three, 400 pounds. And obviously gravity works the same over there as everywhere else. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's no fun. How do you do? I mean, more than the physicality, how do you deal with that mentally? How, how do you say, oh, shit, I was just 10 miles ahead and I'm in the exact same spot. Like that can break some people. Oh, listen, that's that, that no matter how well, you know, versed you are in, in that dynamic, you know, no matter how, you know, how, how aware you are of it, it breaks your heart every single time. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's going to happen because that's the predominant drift. That's the direction that it goes. And you know that that's going to happen. You know that you'll travel 20, 22 percent, you know, sometimes even a little more extra miles than you would normally have to. So if your journey is two, you know, is a thousand kilometers, you're going to travel at least a thousand, two hundred kilometers. And that's, you know, the extra change. And in spite of that, every time it happens, you look at your GPS. And if you stood at the North Pole, like literally at the North Pole, in fact, it's really difficult to line up your GPS to 90 degree north because um, the, the ice is constantly in motion. So if you stood at the the North Pole, your, the numbers, the decimal points would constantly be shifting. Uh, and to try and actually be at the North Pole can be a struggle. Like it's happened to me. It would take me, you know, 10 minutes to actually line up the zero so I can take yeah. a photo of my GPS. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't the actual thing, though, move as well? If, the, if that whole continent is, is, is moving, that whole sh- ice shelf is moving. You know, the, the, I don't know the name of it, but that, the, that ball that they have at the North Pole, right? What, or is that on or, or is that on, on land on land? Yeah, yeah. So so that's the South Pole that you're talking about. You know, the, the North Pole is basically a thin crust of ice over an ocean and it's constantly moving. And so, you know, the, the, the North Pole what, I got it mixed up. Yeah, the South Pole is is it, it also moves incidentally, but we'll get back to that in a second. Okay. It moves incrementally, just you know, a few inches a year. Um but the because the, an ice sheet is always on the move, basically. Yeah. But the the North Pole is basically an ocean. So imagine if you put a cork on an ocean, and you came back, you know, a few minutes later or a year later. Obviously, that thing is going to be a goner, right? So yeah. the, the only difference is that it's not as small as a cork, but it's the same principle. It's 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 pervious to the currents and the wind and the tides and everything. So it's always moving, and um, and so if you you know. If you planted a flag at the North Pole, it would be completely irrelevant because seconds later, it would just no longer be at the North Pole. The only place that's constantly at the North Pole is at the bottom of the ocean, whatever that spot is on the cardinal point, you know, the axis over which the ice, I mean, the uh, the planet rotates. That's uh, going to be the geographical point that is uh, constant. Yeah, no, I I got those mixed up. I because I, I remember the the thing, but I I guess I got them mixed up between the north and the and yeah, the yeah, that's, that's yeah. Fine. it happens a lot. Yeah. Um, have you ever had any um incidents? And this one, this I won't get mixed. On Antarctica, no, no bears. Polar bears. All right. polar bears. That's right. That's a perfect yeah. peanut conversation. I mean, trivia at the bar, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, penguins at the South Pole, polar bears exactly. at the North Pole. 
Yeah, have you had any interactions with them? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I've, I've, you know, you're you're definitely going to get. Uh, well, you, you don't always get an experience with the bears, but uh, but I've gotten to be on a first name basis with with some bears for sure. Yeah, I mean, I was tracked and charged three times while I was alone on the sea ice once uh, by a, a hungry female. Wow. Um, I was, you know, I was, I was tracked by, uh, by, by a male, a curious male who just followed me. And, and I only realized by turning around that, um, it was there and I'd, I have no idea how long it was following me for, uh, because you're, you know, the, you're also completely insulated in your little world. You know, you've got your fur rough around your face, which protects from the wind. Um, and then you're, you're, um, you're, you're often, you know, you're pulling heavy loads, so your your body is leaned forward at a certain angle, which means that you're primarily looking towards the ground. And every time you look up to see where you're going, it kind of puts a little pressure in your neck, you know. So it it creates a bit of a uh, you know that that kind of compression in the uh, the discs of your neck. So you end up just spending a lot of time just looking straight down until you realize, oh, I should probably look around, and make sure there's no <laughs> polar bears. Yeah. And then yeah, lo and behold, um, you know, one time uh, there was one right there. So, um, yeah, I mean, look, you don't travel in the polar region without without a weapon. But it's not to say that you may not get surprised. You know, polar bears are super bright predators, apex predators, of course, and uh, uh, very intelligent in their environment, great hunters. And if um, if they want to get you, they definitely have the upper hand. Yeah, I mean, you're essentially the perfect prey, right? Like you're slow, you're 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 huge, the like bright, colorful clothes, and you they can smell you like forty miles away. And there's, I mean, other than a weapon, there's really like you can't swim better, you can't run faster. There's really nothing we can do against a, a polar bear, essentially. Not if it wants to come get you. I mean, what's yeah. working in your favor is that most polar bears will have never seen a human, and that you definitely don't look like a seal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in fact, you know, you, you don't smell like one either. And I, I don't mean that in a good way. Um, <laughs> you know, a, a polar bear likes, uh, that sort of oily, you know, blubber, um, fish smelling sort of, you know, skin of a, of a, of a seal and humans tend to stink in different ways. Um, and particularly in these kinds of missions. So, yeah. uh, they, they'd look at you wearing an orange suit or whatever it is that you, whatever color you've got. And uh, curiosity is going to be the you know the first barrier for them before they engage in uh, in, a, in an actual uh, charge. You know, yeah. the, the 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 also a bear. I mean, most of the time on the Arctic Sea, a, a bear is going to be lost. There's they got no reason to be out there because there's no um, there's no seal population, so there's no food source, and uh, and so traditionally a bear there is going to be. Um, typically hungry, and the, the Inuit have three terms for for the different uh, behavior of a bear. There's a bear that will come towards you, um, just uh, curious, and that's going to be a, a they call that siriyoktuk. Um, and a bear that charges to intimidate you um, is uh, because maybe there's a cub there, or whatnot. Um, that's upatuktuk. Um, and if a bear is charging with a desire to kill, uh, then that is a uh, pipianyaktuk. Uh, they they so literally I, have names. They literally have words for those things, huh? They do. Well, you know, they also famously have in excess of hundreds of words for to describe the state of the ice and snow. Uh, really? Whereas, uh, 
yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the endless amounts of descriptions of of the snow. It's granularity. It's uh, it's uh, it's wetness. It's heaviness. It's uh, uh, you know, all types of different yeah. ways. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, it makes sense. You know, it, it's like every country, every culture has words for the things that they experience around them. So it does make sense that that's part of their experience that they would have those words. Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm pretty certain that, uh, you know, out of context, a um, an indigenous population would probably find it weird that we have so many different brands of jeans. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. So, I mean, let's let's make a let's make a little bit of a, a shift um, towards climate change. Um, first of all, did you see the massive Russian oil leak that happened? I think it was last week. Over yeah, twenty thousand tons and just all went into the the Arctic Ocean. In Norlitsk, yeah, yeah, in, uh, in Siberia, sure, sure, of course, I saw that. Yeah, barely yeah, I mean, made, barely made headlines. Well, let's just be fair on that front, not to say that, you know, an environmental disaster of that nature happening in Siberia would necessarily grab the headlines. But there's, we've got a lot, of, a lot on our plates um, these days, you know, so in the midst of, of Floyd and, um, and all the commensurate, um, you know, rioting and marches and protesting that's been going on. But nonetheless, yeah, Nordelsk um, in Siberia. Yeah, I mean, look, this is nothing that is out of step with what's been predicted for uh, so long the uh, you know the the economic and socioeconomic implications of climate change and the costs both to nature and of course to uh, to people and industry as well you know these are this is a lot of copper mines down there and a lot of mining activities uh, as well as natural gas and whatnot and and all of that infrastructure is built on permafrost and of course as the permafrost thaws uh, everything from transportation to you know to buildings and infrastructure is now susceptible to structurally losing its ground, and that's basically w- what happened there. Uh, all the more reason to, yeah. And it's massive amounts of methane that are being released from that permafrost, right? Without a doubt, yeah. That's one of the feedbacks, uh, big big feedbacks of of the uh, of the permafrost is all of that trapped carbon. I mean, you have to understand that over the course of the last six million years the the oceans has ebbed and flow up to you know 200 meters in 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 differential uh from the, the various ice ages so of course when when it freezes uh, the ice sort of condenses and freezes and oceans sort of you know uh, recess and and drop and uh, that's in fact how you know cultures from uh, from Asia crossed over the Siberian into uh, Alaska, uh, it's when the ocean dropped by, you know, about 200 meters. And, um, and then, of course, when it melts, it rises. And so during that process, you had all types of pine and peat bot and all kinds of vegetation that generated all this carbon that got trapped into layers upon layers of, uh, of vegetation. And then when it got frozen, all of that methane uh, got trapped, all this carbon got trapped in it as well. And as we're thawing it, um, this becomes a you know real consequential threat to an existential threat actually to everything uh, alive on this planet. Yeah, it's one of those things people don't really talk about. It it it's, it seems like cars and now food has started to to gain more traction. People are realizing that that meat heavy diet is not the right way to go. But there's so many other factors that uh, with climate change that, I, and this is one of them that people don't really talk about, or it's not even people. Maybe I think 
you know, if, if you look at um, at the news cycles, right, you have political instability, COVID, social justice issues, all those things are getting massive headlines as they should, right? It's, it's 24-7 news cycles. But for some reason, educating the public on climate change issues um, and just giving people the facts doesn't seem to to get the same type of um, airtime on the news that some other topics. And, th- and this is arguably the biggest threat to our existence. You would think this would get, you know, airtime just as much as anything else. Y- yes. I mean, obviously the, the, the science and, and actually to be absolutely fair, um, the, having access to data and to information has never been easier um, as as well, it should be given uh, this sort of opening of information channel uh, through the digital age. Um, but uh, and, and you know, and, and within a certain type of media, uh, there is a, a constant cycling of of information that pertains to the transformations happening around the world from uh, from climate. Um, but of course, the, this is a very very challenging. A problematic to to address uh, politically uh, because uh, we have a an economic you know a, a, an economic system that's been based and built on a carbon economy and um, and the you know the the capital that's being generated from that and you know all the periphery um, in, in in the way that our economies basically uh, rely on on carbon to to function. In order to restructure that and to you know to generate a um, a transformation towards a sustainable economy, it, it requires enormous political courage. Um, uh, very very difficult to implement within you know a four year or let's call it five year for the French, for instance, uh, electoral cycle. And the lobbies are so powerful, and all types of different institutions outlive. Uh, one-term presidency, and so this makes this issue uh, as complex as it is to resolve. And uh, and there's you know definitely an argument to be made that it may not get resolved through um, uh, constitutional democracies. Uh, that you know that a different type of a political system may be required um, to in order to do this. Yeah, yeah. I mean. You touched upon this a little bit, but how do you how how do we combat the the, the huge? Because we are living in the era of information, but we're also living in the era of, of mis and disinformation. And these disinformation campaigns are happening all across social media, and even on the news, they'll bring up panels as if it's like a debate, right? Like it, it's not a debate, but they'll bring on this side and this side, and you know this is what X thinks about it, and he's from this political spectrum, and this is what X2 thinks about it, and he's from the other side of the political spectrum, as if it's an actual debate, which it's not. But how, how do we combat these disinformation campaigns all across social media about the non-existence of climate change? I mean, it's like saying smoking is good for you or the, or the earth is flat. It's, it's on par with, with that in 2020. For Absolutely. me, it's Absolutely. I mean, look, there's been a very smart uh, marketing campaign that's been waged against, um, you know, this climate discussion that dates back to the 80s. You know, from the time that traditional industry uh, did legitimate work towards uh, understanding the implications of climate change. And by that, I mean 
Exxon Mobil's and Total and you know large, huge conglomerate of fossil fuel industry. Um, and the result of their findings was that yes, uh, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere raises uh, temperatures and potentially to very dangerous levels for um, you know the health of 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 various ecosystems. And that became an existential threat to their business model. Um, and it was in the 80s that the, you know, that, that different special interests, and in America, the Koch brothers come to mind, uh, yeah. David and Charles Koch, um, who spent uh, enormous amounts of money in small increments uh, and systematically funded a counter-information campaign from little guys, you know, 5,000 here, 15,000 there, up to 50,000, if you will, for a quote-unquote think tank in order to spread this kind of disinformation um, data on, on climate change to generate the illusion that there was a debate. Now, that went on you know, from, the, from the 80s when they started doing it, spending up to $100 million a year in these small increments, which goes quite a long way. You take that into the information revolution of the digital age, and this mushrooms like a cancer, right? Where all of a sudden, you know, these little sort of data sets of counter-information propaganda uh, gets to propagate this sort of counter-information campaign that permeates society and forces the media to consider that, you know, that there may actually be a debate on the question. Divorced entirely from the fact that there is no scientific evidence, or if it is, it's sort of cooked up or, um, you know, or, or, or just formulated without uh, context or even better yet, completely invented. And, uh, it, it, you know, this Internet age makes very difficult the task of uh, vetting the data that comes out because so much comes out of it. I mean, I was watching, I just got a I'm part of a few different data sets that, that I get, and I was, I was looking at how many, um, how many websites there are out there on the, on the net, you know. And, um, and it's, it's something like 200 billion yeah, uh, you know yeah. it's 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 just insane. So you you can't. There's no way of vetting anymore. I mean that this is the end of truth. I mean the in the end, you know we're we're at this sort of crossroad of of you know if, if for those of us who are who like empirical uh, science and you know empirical data sets, um, uh, you know proven by a postulate that's been you know the thesis of which has been proven and counterproven and and th- synthesized and. And now we're opinion makers, if they have a bigger soapbox than scientists, have more credibility. I mean, if you if you look at all these idiots on Fox News who spew out all this, you know, counter information that, that, that repudiates knowledge and science, it's shocking to see how much credence they get in, uh, in you know, mainstream society. But people are absolutely willing to uh, to buy into whatever it is that they're saying, and uh, and this makes a you know much somber sort of realization about the nature of of values in which you know I'm 56 years old and I feel I I never thought I was that's the beginning of our conversation was was that I was a, a punk and I really didn't think that I was a traditionalist in any way, um, and in fact I realized that I'm just a guy who likes to base my decision makings on, you know, on, on, on data, 
that's that's been proven. And today it's not the case. And I, I'll go even further. I don't think that people really care about information in the way that they repudiate science. And they don't really care about freedom either, as long as they've got enough money to spend. So Yeah, well, um, we're, we're living in a weird time right now where tribalism is is at its peak uh echo chambers are, are happening all around us especially on social media and then the algorithm is built for that they'll only show you people that you agree with so you think that you're the smartest person in the room and your opinions are what matters and and you're always right and then with the tribalism part it's like people don't really care if they're telling the truth because their side is telling them that the other side is against them and they don't share their same values and they're going to try to ruin your way of life. So essentially, even when the other side, and I'm not saying which side is what, but when other side listens to the facts from the other side, they're just saying, oh no, this is all made up. This is not something we agree with. And our side told us not to listen to you. And it just, it is, it's post-truth era. And unfortunately, this is happening on social media. I, you know, when, when I, sometimes I'll, I'll go on Twitter for an extended period of time and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it feeling physically sick. I'm like, this is not good. What's happening to us? It's this divisiveness. And I don't think this, this, this was happening. You know, like even if you look at, um, Everything's politicized. If you look at coal, right? And I know, I think in England, they're, they're shutting down their last um, coal plant either this year or next. But in, in the US, it's been just less and less coal workers. And not because they were laying them off, just because of automation, uh, right? They're just, they're well, economically, it just, economically, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Now as, you can... as well, as well, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's more ski instructors in the US than you have coal miners, but the whole when when Trump was was running, it was like, oh, keep the coal miners as if like this small fraction of people is really what's going to keep the economy alive. But it's all political and people believe it without looking at the numbers or the facts. So, yeah, I mean, look, yeah, I, I don't know. I'm I just, words. I just read um, I just read this this really disturbing uh, poll uh, that said that if you are a Republican, uh, only 52% of Republicans believe in the, um, uh, the negative implications of COVID versus 93% of, of Democrats. It, it, you know, it, this, as well as anything else, because it reflects climate change and that the study was about perceptions of climate change and as it related to COVID. And, you know, to your point, this is you know, tribal convictions that are completely divorced from fact. Uh, it's just, you know, it's this echo chamber that that amplifies this opinion. And particularly when the opinion comes from the very top, of course, and we're not going to name names, but I think we can all uh, gather who lives in the White House presently. Um, and, you know, if, if you amplify that level of nonsense, whether it's the put detergents in your lungs or put some strong light, you know, where the sun normally don't shine. I mean, as if somehow that's going to have an impact on it. And, you know, and I just saw another statement that came out of the White House today saying that, you know, that COVID was crushed in the U.S. And never mind that, you know, that there were another 2,400 cases, I'm not sure which state, and another 2,000 in this other state in one day. I mean, you know, just the nature of this disinformation is amplified by the channels that are uh, tribally aligned with your political convictions. And by the way, 
not even that. It's I think it's not even political convictions any longer. I think it's just purely tribal. I don't think there's ideology left in it. Uh, I don't think that people understand what it means to have less taxes relative to their quality of life. I don't think that people understand what healthcare for all actually means for them and that actually probably they would benefit from. I mean, all of these things are, you know, completely divorced from fact. And you believe your own truth. And certainly there's plenty on the on the web to amplify whatever truth you choose to believe in. Yeah. Politics is the new religion. But, um, you know, I, I know that you're you're in Germany for the last two years, right? You said that's correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I always wonder, you know, the world is always obsessed with with what happens in the U.S., right? Like what happens here has implications far and wide. And the news that happens here, whereas it doesn't matter if it's COVID or, you know, a school shooting or some celebrity that, that, you know, took a piss on the street or whatever news happens here, it's worldwide. And, and that's not, you know, if something happens in, in, in Germany, it's not necessarily worldwide news. I just wonder from the perspective of people in Europe, how do they view the U.S. currently? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right. You know, there's that saying, if when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world gets the flu, right? So w- yeah. the rest of the world is always concerned with with what's going on uh, in the U.S. And, and what happens in the U.S. seems to always be hyperbolic, um, you know, because it's it's such a, um, a, a socio- social system of extremes, um, you know, at all ex- sort of levels of the spectrum. Um and and it's you know it's reflected in its culture and it's you know the films kind of represent these this these hyperbolic trends that you know that that happened there but certainly i think never has there been a time yeah never has there been a time i'm not going to say i think <laughs> i'm going to confirm that never has there been a time where this the absurdity of what comes from the U.S. presently, and don't forget, I you know I, I may have been born elsewhere. I have an American passport, um, as well as as two others, and uh, um, it, you know it's it's obviously it's 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 alarming. I mean it's uh, uh, it's it's alarming because we're we're seeing a you know this sort of this flu-like symptom. Uh, not that I want to riff on COVID, but that is spreading to. Uh, to other countries, and that becomes its own self-amplification. Um, and if you know, if you find allies in you know in in Poland or in Hungary or in Italy or in Austria or in Britain or in the Philippines or in Brazil, you know you've got Bolsonaro and Duterte and you know and Orban and this guy Salvini is not there anymore and Bojo in London, blah blah. blah. And these guys keep reinforcing that. You can more or less say whatever you want. And if you attach that to a tribal alignment, uh, then that's, you know, the, the horse that you're going to be champion in that race. And, uh, and that's very alarming for the, the concept of, of freedom, uh, constitutional freedoms. Um, and in the way that our societies are moving uh, presently, which is, you know, uh, more and more, we're going to see uh, the accumulation of wealth divorced from labor, uh, with more and more labor obsolescence to artificial intelligence, mechanization, automation, etc. So, you know, by the end of the century, up to seventy percent of 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 labor, you know, uh, could find uh, obsolescence, and 
you know, that takes us into a place of a universal basic income or, you know, this sort of the, the uh, you know, the, the role of government in our, in our daily lives. And let's be clear, no matter what technology brings, and I'm sure a lot of it will be very good, but nothing is ever free in life. It never has been. It never will be. You will not be getting a check from the government for nothing just to write poetry, have you know, play sports and have sex. I mean, yeah. it's going to be it's going to be Sounds more, lovely, but yeah, it's going to be more complicated than that. And what's happening presently is that we're seeing the beginning of the breakdown of this you know experiment, uh, this democratic experiment that's you know that's some two hundred and some years old and and phasing into another stage of 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 uh, of governance, which is uh, probably not going to be a constitutional democracy by the end of the century. Yeah. Well, the, the argument you hear from from tech is this will open up, you know, the, the fact that automation is going to take over menial jobs and the fact that you just have to, you know, stand in, in a line and just put pieces together in a machine or the fact that, you know, truck drivers, which is, I think, the number one job in the U.S. as far as uh, people who work in it, uh, all these menial jobs are gonna you know the fact that they're going to disappear are going to open up new opportunities for people to be more creative to people to come up with new industries just like you know apps like apps wasn't a thing 20 years ago and now millions of apps like you said 200 billion websites so it's it's a huge industry tech and they're saying that this will open up creativity for other industries other businesses and that's how we develop and i i could see that argument but yeah it's um with you know, climate change and political instability and um, the hoarding of of um, capital by by the one percent. It's uh, I don't know. It, how, how do you stay, I guess, optimistic about, or are you optimistic maybe about the next like fifty years as far as humanity with with regards to climate change? Optimism is a relative currency, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, and ne- never more so than than presently. So, um, you know, I have. Two little girls, four and five. So all these are concerns that uh, that that matter greatly to me for them. Um, but there's a confluence of influences which are both socioeconomic. Uh, you know, as you said, the this sort of pyramid shaped economic model. I mean, Jeff Bezos is going to be the first trillionaire in 2026. You know, trillionaire. That's a that's a, a thousand billion. <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, it's just it's, it's hard to even comprehend what that represents. But one thing that we can certainly comprehend is that, um, you know, Marie Antoinette didn't lose her head in 1793 because she was in a balanced system. And, you know, in physics, which is a, an area of, of my my work, you know, in, in climate uh, that I know uh, a bit about, anytime you have any type of instability, it's always a precursor to a crash. And when you have that amount of value that's um, that's generated and, and concentrated at a, at a sort of peak, you know, very pointed peak of, of society. It's not a stable system, uh, neither for that individual nor for the rest of society. So that's one. You've got socioeconomic instability that breeds um, this kind of resentment. Then you have this labor obsolescence. And, and then on top of that, you've got climate issues. And these climate issues are destabilizing areas around the globe where we have a massive migration of people away from the tropics and towards the south and north. There's more land mass in the north and more economic opportunity. So by definition, more people are moving in the northern hemispheres. And when your job is threatened by technology and 
you get this double whammy of now having somebody coming from elsewhere, never mind that they have an existential threat of, to their lives uh, on their own. They simply cannot live where they do. Um, and the same goes, by the way, uh, the same applies to plants and animals and insects across ecology, right? So humans, why just because we've got boundaries, why should we not also try and find better fortunes elsewhere? And so, but of course, if you're losing your work to labor, I mean, the labor to uh, your jobs to technology, and now you have this influx of individuals, all it takes is one individual that comes out and says, you know, keep, you know, the, uh, you know, this, you know, keep the, this immigration population away from our borders and build walls and all this stuff. And they're the reason why you're, you know, you're disenfranchised and, and, uh, you know, your job is threatened, blah, blah, blah. And this is, you know, this is the route towards totalitarianism, the strongman politics and, you know, and sort of bureaucratic uh, or autocracies or dictatorships, as it were. And so, so I think it's this confluence. You've got technology, climate, um, you know, technology, I mean, um, uh, uh, pyramid-shaped economic models, all of these are leading towards this area of instability. So your question is, are you optimistic? I don't know. Would you be? <laughs> when, you, when you're looking at this, I'm looking at my daughters thinking, okay, that's four and five. What should they um, study? What should they do? And so I, I have a few thoughts on that. You know, I, I think that human contact is always going to be uh, important. I think, um, I think languages are always going to be important. Let's face it, if you're, even if you're I don't know, a real estate agent, and you have a client from China, uh, are you more likely to deal with a guy who's got an algorithmic translator uh, speaking to you or somebody who speaks to you in your tongue? I think in your tongue, you're going to have a leg up. So, you know, speaking multitudes of languages, two, three, four, why not five? Um, I think that's always going to be an advantage. I think arts and sports are going to play also an important role in the future because machines are not likely going to be as proficient in these, um, in these disciplines. Um, and then, you know, after that, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. I mean, I think with regards to, to, to Jeff Bezos and, and, and Bill Gates, I, it's one of those things I go back and forth, right? It's almost like because they are billionaires, they are automatically these evil lords that loom all over, you know, above us. And, with with Bill Gates, like this, with COVID, when COVID hit, like this guy's trying to solve sanitation issues in Africa. He's, um, you know, he's trying to to find um, a vaccine for COVID, and he was vilified the whole time, as if like he, you know, I, I, there was actual memes, and and a lot of people talk about he's responsible for COVID, which is ridiculous. And then you have Jeff Bezos, who I think twenty twenty five years ago he was in a little office with uh with a marker that said uh, Amazon in the in the background. And now he's this billionaire on, on trajectory to being a trillionaire, but he's not some African dictator that hoarded and, and stole money from, you know, he worked for everything. And I think recently he put in an initiative uh, for climate change and, and he- 10 billion. How much? 10 billion. $10 billion. So, and then do, I don't know, like, do you cap people? Like, do you, do you limit people on how much money they can make? I mean, he's give, he has a product, a service that the whole world uses and they love it. And we all use it. I, I use it all the time. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. So, I mean, what do you do? Do you limit people on, on how much they can make? Do you, you know what I mean? It, it's, it's a tricky thing. 
Well, it's tricky because we're we're still looking at everything through the prism of of this, you know, this constitutional democracy that we've 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 all, you know, grown to to revere and uh, a revere that is and uh, um, and and admire. The, The reality is, the world is changing very very rapidly. 2020 is the seminal turning point in, in history. They'll talk about 2020, 200 years from now. Yeah. These very days that we're living today, right now, this sort of incendiary, you know, sort of, you know, tinderbox that we're, uh, that, that we're living, um, you know, that we're on is something that will resonate through the ages. So this is, you know, historically, it, it's interesting. I think it's also a turning point. You know, it's the spark to the, uh, you know, not to, not to the powder box, but, you know, to, it's, it's starting to, it's it's headed in that direction, and one thing is certain is that when you know when when the our forefathers you know wrote the constitution, uh, when you know the French helped us get rid of the the Brits, um, and when you know when the concept of democracy for these populations coming from Europe, um, you know not those coming from Africa, uh, let's be sure uh, at the time, but uh, but nonetheless this concept of freedom. Um, we, didn't look anything like the, the the social structure that we're in today. Uh, this notion of of deregulation, which you know has sort of dominated these sort of freedom and economic um, models, didn't really apply when there were you know seven and a half billion come you know ten to eleven billion people. When you know when the the concept of widespread damage, the optimization of production, had this negative impact on on the environment. Regulations are necessary in that context. If you live in your little tribe and you're, you know, you you've got your little plot of land and you're growing your own thing, and yeah, sure, you don't need regulation. If you're uh, Monsanto and you're endangering the DNA of neighboring crops and potentially, you know, being the dooms machine for, you know, crop production. Not to say that there's not a counter argument to that. So I don't want to be pinned into a you know, a, a, a GMO versus non-GMO discussion without contextualizing it. But what I'm saying is that you need regulations. You need other people to say, wait a minute, your special interests cannot come at the expense of everybody else's safety. And so this notion of, of, of you, you were asking, what should they do? Look, Amazon didn't make its money um, innocently. It's put, you know, millions of mom and pop shop out of work. It's taken, you know, a labor force that was um, that 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 was that had incentive and that was creative and transformed them into basically bots that are packaging boxes and are paid, you know, very very low wages and often in a temporary basis as independent contractors so that they don't have to cover the you know all the sort of you know medical and etc. So. You know, the, the, the reality is nothing is completely innocent. You know, Bill Gates didn't make his money completely innocent. I think Bill and Melinda are doing amazing work with malaria and all kinds of other things. And it's amazing because they've sort of taken their wealth and put it to good. I mean, they've got so much of it. And I'm sure that Bezos is a good guy. I mean, he, you know, bought the post and I think he's trying to defend, you know, at least the institution of, of, of the news um, cycle and, and uh, and at the same time, um, yeah, put $10 billion towards climate research. But the reality is, how much money is enough money? Is a thousand billion not too much money? What are you going to do with a thousand billion? 
when people in the U.S. are eating pet food every day, some of them, when, when COVID happened, kids then no longer had access to a traditional meal, which was in school, et cetera. This is unconscientiable. You cannot have somebody with that much money. Now, I'm not saying we need to be communists here. I'm saying we need to be socialist in our thinking. I think that Bernie Sanders was onto something. And, you know, and this is not necessarily where I would have come initially, but I'm led into this area of going like, there are too many people who are struggling, who are led to lives of drugs and crimes, or even not even that, but simply desperation, um, where they do not have the same economic and social opportunities as, as many of us do, and that we are in the first world ground zero country uh, of the planet, and that this is not acceptable, that you can't have 20% of people in the South that eat pet food every day. Uh, it's not, not normal. And that when you have a thousand billion, I think that there has to be a tiered taxing system that, you know, that, that basically at, after a certain amount of of well-earned wealth or even corrupt wealth, I don't care, but after a certain amount of wealth, then you need to tier that. And you can't have so many tax breaks on the basis that somehow the wealth of the rich is benefiting the rest of us. That is utter nonsense, and that needs to stop. Yeah. I feel like we could we, we could go on and talk about this for another hour easy, but I know you have a hard stop at an hour and a half, and yeah. we're close to that. So okay. I'll just ask my, uh, my, my final question. So I guess what is the message that you're trying to bring back for, for people to hear back from the Arctic? Look, my message is is is, is a personal, um, you know, um, story of of aspiration, um, and the, 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 that is what brought me to these environments. The story that that I bring back from these environments is one of of reflection um, about the human condition as it relates to uh, to nature, and that this coexistence that needs to happen should we. Uh, plan to have a future on this planet, which certainly seems to be the case, um, threatened though it is, is that we are not going to reach that place uh, without developing and strengthening our empathy, uh, empathy towards uh, all living things, um, you know, animate and inanimate, uh, but also, of course, empathy towards other humans and empathy towards ourselves. I think that empathy is, you know, uh, the, the the one resource uh, that is um, that should be renewable, but that is endangered. People are more and more disconnected from the suffering and the plight of other people uh, on the basis of division from you know geographical division, cultural divisions, uh, socioeconomic divisions, and that we, that we you know if we don't all make it, none of us make it. That's really the message that I want to bring back is that this is not a, you know, a survival of the fittest. Uh, when it's bad for one, it's bad for all. Uh, now, there's various tiers and various degrees and whatnot, of course. It's like COVID. It's not the equalizer, but it does affect all of us. And it puts all of us, you know, in fear and makes us all vulnerable. Um, but it, in the end, you know, with this discussion on climate and the planet, um, this is an all hands on deck. It, climate change has no passport. Uh, it doesn't care how much money you have. Um, at the end of the day, sure, the disenfranchised are going to suffer first, but down the line, we all lose. Yeah. Rising tide lifts all boats, right? Very nicely said. Yeah. Well, 
you know, we just did a did a great job. Exactly. One hour and nine, one, one hour and a half, 90 minutes. Um, Outstanding. I want to thank you so much. You're a very intelligent, very articulate, very empathetic person. I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to, to talk to me today, man. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Roy. Yeah. Thank you for doing what you're doing and thanks for having me on it. Yeah, man. Where can people find you on the, on the right. internet, on social media? Yeah. So Copeland Adventures, it tends to be the one. Uh, I mean, that's for uh, Instagram, Copeland Adventures and Facebook as well. And then it's, uh, um, I think it's S. Copeland for Twitter. Uh, yeah. Okay. Awesome, yeah. man. Well, keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I support you. And um, yeah, hopefully we'll do this again in the future. I love that. Thank you, Roy. That was a real pleasure. It was fun to talk to you. Same here, man. Take care. Okay, pal. Bye-bye.